Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. It is a podcast that celebrates pro wrestling, usually from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. As a matter of fact, I feel comfortable saying usually the 80s because that's when I really enjoyed it the most. Um, But if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast. If this is the first time you're checking it out, you will find that out. Before I get rolling, I want to say join our Facebook group if you are so inclined. Good conversation with a bunch of really good dudes, magazine covers, results, photos, whatever you got. We've got it there. Um, Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And with that, I just want to bring up that this show comes out on June the 9th. Uh, 2023, that's going to be exactly five years of Stick to Wrestling. The first one came out on June 10th, 2018. So I want to thank all of you for making it a great five years. And speaking of making it a great five years, I want to bring on a very popular guest who has been on multiple times, Mr. Brad Breitzman. Brad, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. No, we, we always have a good show when you're on, and you are our expert for this week's topic because I want to talk about what went on in the AWA, the American Wrestling Association, uh, 40 years ago, the year of 1983. But before we do that, uh, just a couple of days ago, we lost the Iron Sheik. We certainly did. Uh, was it Tuesday? Wednesday. It was, I found out on Wednesday. I found out like late Wednesday morning. What a character. He was something else. I mean, when Michael Hayes is like, wow, I'm going to be traveling with the Iron Sheik. This is going to be crazy. You know that (laughs) he he was a character. Absolutely. And I'm seeing like a lot of like photo tribute type things to him right now because, you know, following the loss and, uh, you know, he was in really good shape for a long time and and I think pretty much drew money Iron Sheik is one of those guys on my list of wrestlers that I should have seen at some point but never did I never saw him perform live wow you never saw him nope. live which is crazy because everyone Vern trained eventually came back through uh, you know if he didn't uh, if he, Vern didn't offer him to you know break somebody's leg which you know Take that with as many grains of salt as you wish. Yes. But I am a little bit surprised Vern didn't bring him back when the WWF fired him in 87. Yeah, I don't know. Was he? I guess he was maybe considered so uh, dependable by that time. I'm not too sure. 87. Um, was that following the Duggan incident? Exactly. They both got fired, although it's it's rumored that Duggan wasn't really fired. He was just kind of given a, given a lead. Yeah, and, and they would, the Sheik would drug test Red, and uh, he'd think it's a good thing he passed, or he, thought he tested positive, so he would think that it was a good thing when Vince called him in to put him in the bullpen. <laughs> yeah, really. 
Yeah, I'm I'm surprised because you know I mean you're right. Vern brought brought most of the guys back, and he's working. You know, after the WWF, the guy was working world class in Dallas when that thing was beyond on its ass. Yep, absolutely. There's a bunch of guys like that that came through the AWA kind of on their way down, but that Vernon trained or had a hand in. I'm thinking of like Sergeant Slaughter, um, Jimmy Snuka. He didn't train him, but he was in the AWA. He may have worked with Vern a little bit. In that He was Lonnie Kealoi um, in the AWA. And uh, who's the third one I'm thinking of? I forget right now. Um, uh, let's see. Well, there's Backland. He came back through, but we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I'm going to have my own show on that. Another guy I, that I was thinking of was superstar Billy Graham, and that's part of the 83 story I have in front of me. So, Oh, Brad Reinitz came back in like 89. Maybe that's who you're thinking of. And Patera. Yeah, Ken Patera. All those guys that probably didn't pay Vern what he – Vern wanted them all to sign one of those release things where, they, where Vern got the kickback of like 15% of their earnings through their career for training him and – like, uh, I know Ric Flair got burned on that deal when they brought him in to work with Brian Pillman. It was time for his payoff, and Vern said, well, you never paid me for training you, so there is no payoff. Oh, man. Yeah, he, and I wonder if he did that to some of these guys, because there were guys that were in and out, so it's hard to say. 15%. Yeah, those, that never holds up in any kind of court of law. You cannot do that. That's considered servitude. I remember the Iron Sheik, when he first came to the WWF, he was called the Great Hussein Arab. And yep. if you if you are so inclined, anyone listening, one of Bob Backlund's best title defenses was June 4th, 1979 at Madison Square Garden against the Great Hussein Arab slash Iron Sheik. So you got nothing going on. You want to check that. You might want to check that out. But Brad, the AWA 1983 was 40 years ago, amazingly enough. And what do you think the biggest story coming into 1983 in that promotion was? You know, the, the Super Sunday, April 24th thing has been done to death. I can't go through this, you know, my notes here without referring to it and going over it. But I think the biggest story of the year is this is probably the most lucrative year uh, ever for the American Wrestling Association. They were running on 100, 120%. Um, they, they, had, they were running a ton of shows. They were doing great business. The business uh, did drop off a little bit after after Super Sunday, but it was still amazing. That's that's the I think that's the main takeaway for AWA 1983 is that they were just just printing money. I mean, it was it was so hot. They had they had segued out of working the smaller auditoriums locally here and into the big building, which is an eighteen thousand seat building, and they yes. were still well with that at the end of the year. So yeah, I think that I think that. Just the business they were doing was 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 phenomenal. And Greg Gagne has said that he had he had been negotiating to have some sort of a special on CBS, which I mean, who knows if that's true? But you know, I mean, I I I see what you see that business was booming. Eighty three was kind of a weird year because the WWF booming, world class booming, AWA out of control, Mid Atlantic kind of in the middle, and then you've got like you know Georgia and Mid South were both having lousy years. Southwest and you know kind of 
hit the bricks. I mean, you know, they lost their USA network deal, which is kind of all they had. It was like, you know, either promotions were hot or they were cold. I don't know if it's, it's it's really indicative of the whole country, but I do know, and I remember back that 1980, late later 82 into 83, cable television was exploding in the Twin Cities. It was going everywhere. We first got it at, at my house when I was growing up. I was young then. It was in, I think, August of 82. And suddenly... You know, there was more than one game in town. And, and, I mean, people had a lot of interest for that. But, yeah, I think in Georgia, didn't you have, like, Larry Zabisco and the Killer Brooks crap on top? We did. They they and, sure did. And in Dallas, of course, they're printing money. Southwest had screwed up their USA deal. Um, but, yeah, a lot of the – just most of the business was just really hot at that time. It was the beginning of a hot, like, three- or four-year stretch for – well, for some of the some the promoters that survived. Yeah, and one thing I want to point out, too, there there's kind of a, a weird history, false history out there that as soon as Vince expanded and went into the AWA markets, the AWA cratered. It did not. The AWA had out very, still was very hot in 1984. Yeah, they were outdrawing Vince. Uh, Vince was running the Met Center, which was a more expensive building. That's where the North Stars played, of course. Um, if you're from around here, you know that, of course. But um, it was a, it was like a five figure building to run at the time. I remember hearing that, and 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 Vern was outdrawing Vince through '84, and they did have some good houses. And there was no Wrestling Observer newsletter for me in 1984, so I don't have any gates in front of me. But I, and Vern, I think, was outdrawing him through the next year. No, that sounds about right. The AWA was still had a very strong 1984. Looked like they were slowing down a little bit in 1985, and yes. by the end of 1986, you're like, okay, this is now a. They are just trying to survive as a a kind of a minor league territory. Yeah, it dropped off really quickly, and um, you know, it's it's kind of the way that. The way the trajectory was going, I guess, is the best way to to look at it. I've got another big takeaway from 83, if you're ready for one, besides the most lucrative year ever. This has got to have been, oh, that's good English. This must have been (laughs) Nick Bockwinkle's most busy, busy uh, year of his career. And he probably made the most money. And there's some when I was going over results, I found a bunch of interesting things about 1983 Nick Bockwinkle. But that year, he had as the AWA champion traveling. He had outside of the AWA, he had 26 dates. I know he was he was a regular for Paul Bosch in Houston. Yep, he he worked in Memphis many times, Louisville, Houston, uh, Calgary. He was up there for a couple weeks. Oh wow. Lexington, Kentucky, Houston, Houston. Uh, only one trip to Japan for him that year, but I've got 26 dates out of territory just for the champion. And I, I when I when I compile stuff, I, I generally I Chicago confuses me so much because it was a, kind of a, a duo promotion thing, and they were always doing their own thing down there. But I look at the local title defenses here in the home base. And Bachwinkle only had uh, seven title defenses that year, which is actually kind of high because they didn't like to have the champion on every show defending the title. But he did have seven. Uh, that's that's that was just locally here. 
I stopped counting how many title matches he had the whole year, but he was very busy. He must have been making a lot of money. Oh, certainly. You know, one funny thing, I, when I first started getting Japanese tapes, I got them from a, a gentleman in Japan, and he listed, you know, Bachwinkle was doing a tour in Japan, I think in late uh, 86, early 87, and he had his name as Nichrock Winkle. Like, his last name was Winkle. <laughs> anyway. Oh, jeez. As someone who grew up watching AWA wrestling, when did you actually start watching? Uh, I, I would see at my my dear departed uh, Grandma Ruth's uh, house on Sunday mornings. I remember back to maybe 76 or 77. I saw Mad Dog Vashon on television when I was very young, and I promptly shat. Well, I, I it just scared me, and I was like, who's that? And I wanted to see more of that. But when I really got the bug, of course, was 81. Okay. That's when I saw my first live show, and I think my father regretted buying those tickets ever since uh, <laughs> after that. Because until I got my driver's license, he was pretty much in with me to the Civic Center every month. No, it's nice of him. But 1981 is when it really picked up. Oh, my dad was great. Yeah, I miss him very much. Hey, I just want to throw in, we're, we're taking questions from our, our Facebook group for this episode. We'll, we'll get a few out there. But Jamie Ward doesn't have a, a, a question. He has a comment. I hope this means the return of Brad Brightsman. So see how what a popular guy you are. Thank you, Jamie. That's very nice to hear. I want to share an observation with you. I only followed the AWA through the magazines until I want to say like 85 when they got on ESPN, unless you're including pro wrestling USA, which I kind of don't. Um, no. It was kind of its own entity. I had been, you know, getting, getting the magazine since like summer of 1976 and Bachwinkle was champion. Yep. And then we had that like 80, 81 when Vern Gagne was champion, which always was kind of weird to me. Oh. And then they just put the title back on Bachwinkle. As someone who just followed the promotion through the magazines, like by the, certainly by the middle of 1983, I was like, oh man, well, you know, this promotion needs something else. I say that not knowing that they were drawing just fine with Nick Bockwinkle as champion, and that's all that matters. But, I mean, you, you know, so you were still kind of, it was all still kind of new to you, and I'll, I'll bet you were not tired of Nick Bockwinkle at all. Well, you know, I've always been a, the number, number one, chiefly, I've always been a Bobby Heenan fan. I think looking back at, you know, I'm 10, 11 years old, what did I really want to see? Well, I wanted to see Bobby Heenan bleed, and I want to see him get beat up and do that flip bump. Sure, but um, which yeah, I, I was I was a big fan of his. My my appreciation for Nick Bockwinkel came a little bit later, when he had retired, and I thought, you know, in my older years as I grew older, I thought what a privilege it was to see him work eight times a year as good as he was. And you did make mention of the 1981 debacle uh, where uh, Vern had the belt, and he had no business having the belt at that time. I think he had maybe two or three defenses here locally. One oh, against man. Jerry Blackwell, which was horrible, and it was not Jerry Blackwell's fault. And Vern just—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm an up-and-coming, you know, fan who's going to get really invested in this and spend my money every month. I didn't give a damn about Vern Gagne. I mean, I'm on the young end of the spectrum there in the scale, yes. but it just did. It came off as being just ridiculous because he. he I was going to say he looked old, but he was old. He always looked old. 
Yeah, he did. And then they had that the match in 81 where he retired, which was an absolute stinker. And then, yeah, the, the whole thing with them awarding the title to Bachman because he's the number one contender. And then they would cut away to, Ver, to Vern being upset, rubbing his head and talking to, uh, to Okerlund about how that's, you know, that's just ridiculous. And, you know, we should be able to run a one-night tournament. He was, you know, upset about it. He wasn't happy. Uh, yeah, the, the promoter wasn't happy with his own booking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know what? The, the worst part is you have Nick Bockwinkle lose cleanly in that match. And then here, Nick, here's the belt. It, was, it just did, did not make any sense. Uh, we, by the way, this comes out uh, like about 18 hours, not even after we're recording it. And Brad, wow, Trump got indicted. Seven counts. It's just broke on my Twitter. I saw it come down, too. I'm not going to comment further, but I did see it come down. Let me have a drink of water. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let me take a, a question from someone here. There's a sure. couple of good ones. All right. Here's, now, here's a question that leads into what we were just talking about from Chad Arthur. Since Vern wouldn't put the belt on Hogan in 1983, who would have been the next best choice to take the title off of Bockwinkle? Brad, once again, growing up, uh, you know, following wrestling through the magazines, I had a hunch in 1980. Okay. Right. Be- I didn't even know that Vern was had the, you know, the big match coming up, but I was like, you know what? It feels like Billy Robinson. Is is going to win this title, and of course he never did. What would your what would have been your thoughts on Billy Robinson taking the title from Nick Bockwinkel specifically in 1983? Would that have been fine, or was Billy? I I know he was past his prime, but could he have had a run, a successful run with the title? Not at that stage, no. Um, okay, they, they eased in 1974. Even well, they made you know they did the angle and the, the wrestler movie. Um, but but Billy Robinson had his his series of of serious challenges to Vern Gagne in '74. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen there. They even did the false finish at the amphitheater in the summer of '74, where um, Billy Robinson pinned him two two falls to none, and then they left the building, the amphitheater, the fans thinking that Billy Robinson was the new champion. I had not heard that. Yeah, and then they switched it with a leg on the rope on the second fall. So. Uh, that happened, and, and no, I think it's by 83, Billy Robinson was very crusty, and he was very grouchy, and I have another choice for that position, but yeah, Billy Robinson, I, he was on the first 1981 show that I went to, and boy, he's, somebody next to me said, you know, they call him the man of a thousand holds, but I, he looks like the man of a thousand years. Oh, ouch. Uh, yeah, Billy Robinson's push came a lot earlier, and uh he would have been he would have been a nightmare to deal with i think as champion who who would you have put in on that in that spot um 1983 rick martell and bachwinkle had two title matches at the uh, st paul civic center and they were amazing i saw one of them okay yep they were very good he wasn't the one who who had the most title matches with with nick here locally that year but he definitely had probably the best ones Mart- Martel in 1983, prob- uh, that makes him earlier than they did by a year and a half, year and three quarters. I think he could have handled it then. I was thinking either, either, probably either Tito Santana or my pick would have been Rick Martel. And I think what they maybe could or should have done 
is, I mean, you don't want to change things up too much because you're su- successful, but yeah. you know, you no longer have Nick, Nick Bockwinkle challenging baby faces. I mean, I would have thought about putting the belt on Martell, and I think what they should have done in, in 84, 85, and, and what they should have done had they, you know, put it on him earlier is just go with the WWF formula, have heel of the month or heel of every two or three months and just rotate guys in and out. Well, I mean, this, yeah, exactly, exactly right. And this is going to go into the Super Sunday thing I'm going to have to eventually touch on. But if Vern was going to let somebody wear that belt, it had to be somebody who could wrestle. That yeah. came back and bit him in the ass in 85 when he misbooked Rick Martel's AWA champion. But there's, I mean, that and Bachwinkle was a huge Martel, you know, he championed for Rick Martel to get the belt once he did. Bachwinkle was a massive fan uh, of his of, of Rick Martel's in ring work, and they had some amazing matches. Um, strangely enough, though, I got to bring this up, and then we're probably going to have to touch on Super Sunday, I guess. Oh yeah, because it's so germane to the year. Martel and Bachwinkle did the same finish at the Civic Center. Almost identical to what they did with Super Sunday that same year, what appears to be the month before. Uh, Either that, it's the 116 match, but I think it's the 313 match. The ref takes a bump. Bachwinkle goes to throw Martell over the top rope. Does. Okay. Martell grabs the top rope grabs himself before he hits the floor and then he does the the kip up thing where he pulls himself back into the ring over the top rope which is dealing with your top rope an awful lot uh especially the next month they went home with it but he pulls himself back into the ring without hitting the floor he's all hot and bent and out of shape referees just kind of coming too. he grabs bachwinkle throws him over the top rope the match is over to disqualification it was just too much bullshit in their finishes. Yeah. And they weren't keeping track, it didn't seem like. I, I know another promotion who suffered from the, those those kind of finishes. Uh, would you be talking about something Dusty was running? I most certainly would be. I mean, just, you know, you can't go to Charlotte every month and have a Dusty finish and, you know, I mean, matches with no finishes. And they, they kept doing that. And it, it feels like the AWA was a step ahead there. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But, you know, I Super Sunday, can can we touch on that? Can I go over I, I was just about to say Super Sunday, you've got this on your mind. Yes, I do. And I mean, you can't it's been done to death and you can't and it's been the revi- revisionistic re- revisionist uh thing where Hogan, you know, was claimed was is given the belt and you know, this that and the other thing. Super Sunday was on April 24th, 1983. They sold out the St. Paul Civic Center, and they had several thousand next door in the smaller St. Paul Auditorium. It's called the Roy Wilkins now. Watching it on closed-circuit screen feed right next door to the building. They were both in the part of the same complex. Now, everyone had to think the the title was changing hands. Well, God, I mean, that's what everyone wanted. My rant on it, and I was just going to say, I was in the main arena. I was lucky. I was in the main arena, and I saw it. I was there. That was essentially a one-match card. People only wanted to see Hogan win the belt. Vern came out of retirement, teamed with Mad Dog against the Blackwell and the Sheik, I think it was. 
And they put that one on last, and everyone was just pissed and leaving. Nobody cared. Oh, Um, man. Nobody cared about Vern anymore. Historically, the night was overblown because it was kind of a stinker. And, I mean, the fans were just pissed. They were just gone crazy. I think I talked about this, touched on this the last time I was on as a guest. But the minute that Bleers took the bump, the, the cups started flying into the ring. People knew. And, I mean, what do you do? I mean, the story goes in several ways. But you've got Hogan backstage with, with Vern and probably Greg and Nick. And the, they're like, okay, you know, they wanted to, if you believe this, 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 this version of the story, they were ready to say, okay, you know, take the belt, which had to have killed Vern. Because to have a muscle-bound guy that really couldn't do any mat wrestling or work. But I, I, the, the story I've heard, and I tend to believe, is that Hogan nixed it. Because they were having the, the dispute with, the, pay, with the, the merch payoffs and things like that. And Hogan was going to Japan, and Vern was like, that's great, but I get this percentage of your booking as AWA champion. And Ho- I don't know, have you heard this one, John? I heard, I have heard that uh, that Vern wanted a, a a piece of what Hogan was getting in in New Japan. Yeah, and so Hogan, I guess Hogan kind of said, "Well, no, we're not doing that." And and that night at the building, the finish was changed. That's a really cool. I don't know if it's a fairy tale or not. I can see that happening. But at the eleventh hour, Hogan says, "No, I'm not going over because I'm going to Japan and I want to make my money for myself." What do you do? You had they had to have been scrambling. The finish they came up with wasn't particularly great, and it made everyone mad. But I mean, it's it's a tough it's a tough grown ball, you know. It's it's weird, but you know the the night going back to the night, it was overblown hysterically, and 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 strange. I mean, strangely, uh, results wise, I've been doing some research. That was Hulk Hogan's only title match with Nick Bockwinkle in 1983 in, in the local uh, market. One time. Oh, wow. One time. And they, they did the story that Hogan got mad and, and took off to Japan. Do I have that correct? Yep. Okay. Yeah. He's like, I got nothing left to prove. I'm leaving. They didn't say anything about Japan. But he's like, no, I won't come back. And then they kept going with everything. And then while Hogan was in, in Japan, they put uh, Nick Bockwinkle into a great program with Wahoo McDaniels. Now you would think in 1983, Wahoo McDaniels maybe passed passed due on that. I'm here to tell you, they had some great matches. They had three title matches in su- successive months uh, in June, July, and August. All Wahoo, and it was uh, they were the matches were great. I mean, Bockwinkle and Wahoo were roommates. In, in Hawaii in the 60s. So they, they'd known each other for a long time. And Wahoo could still go. And, and they were great. Now what they did is they started to tease Hogan back into the picture. They would say what they did at that point. They're like, you know, you can write in your cards and letters to show that Hogan, to, you know, to, 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 to prove to Hogan, we'll show them to Hulk Hogan that you want him back in the AWA. And basically what they were doing was they were getting addresses Yes, right. for their mailing for merch. Work. Yeah, for merch or whatever it might be. But H- Hogan stayed away, and then uh, they had a crawl across the bottom of the screen. You know, it was so high tech, the AWA TV. So I don't know if the gate wasn't looking good or the pre sale, but there's 
crawling across the bottom of the floor or the floor, the bottom of the screen is they're showing the previous Bachwinkle Wahoo match that had a controversial finish. It says, we have just been informed that Hulk Hogan has bought a ringside ticket for tonight's show. And, you know, the place just... Wahoo and Bachwinkle were working their asses off, and about 12 minutes in, Eye of the Tiger hits. And the place goes berserk. They hadn't seen him in, I think, three months. The place went absolutely nuts. Hogan comes out, and then I don't. And Wahoo did an interview about that, and he's like, "Well, let's let Hogan be gone, and you let the other ones be gone, and just get down to business." So you know they couldn't have enjoyed it very much. But Hogan would come out, and he would he would come out with a T-shirt that says "Remember Me" on it, and a question mark. I remember that one. Yeah, and 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 so the finish was Heenan got involved. I think he tripped Wahoo and, and they ended the, you know, they had the blow off. Nick pinned him. But then, you know, of course, the show started right then in some senses because Hogan goes over and grabs Heenan, puts him on his shoulder, runs him into the ring post like a dart. Heenan falls on the floor. My first ever uh, appearance on Stick to Wrestling, or my first guest spot. I told you the story of the big puddle of Heenan's blood where the guy leaned over and dipped his yes. program in it. <laughs> that was that night. So everyone got what they wanted. They got to see Hogan. They got to see Heenan writhing around and, you know, half of his body fluids and blood. You know, it was, it was, it was good. Wahoo and Nick had great matches. I want to take a step back here. It, it, it sounds like Vern, after the fact, is telling the story that, you know, no, 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 I wanted to put the title on Hogan. And the night of the show, we couldn't come to agreement. Look, if you're having this sounds like, you know, the AWA's version of the first WrestleMania. OK, yes. You know, it, it's just the elite match that they, yep. they probably could have had outdoors if they had thought of it or, you know, I guess it's too cold in, in April. But if they had waited a couple of months. And, and you know, he's trying to make it sound like, you know, it wasn't his fault that Hogan left. Don't blame me for not making him the champion. He did an interview in the, the Pro Wrestling Torch in 87 saying that he didn't think Hulk Hogan would, would work as, as you know, a world's heavyweight champion. Of course, this is after WrestleMania three. Yep. You know, I think it's been proven that it can work. But I mean, I, I just don't believe that. I especially if they knew Hogan was going to Japan and hey, let's try to sneak the belt on him so we can get fifteen percent or whatever. It just that one does not add up to me whatsoever. No. Yeah, I, I think this is just the Ganya's you know after the fact kind of explanation as far as well. Oh, no, none of this was our fault. You know, we were going to put the belt on Hogan. Oh, yeah, I don't believe it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's another take as many grains of salt as you wish with the story. I noticed that it's kind of the story being trumpeted or parroted by Greg Gagne. Yeah. And I was, you know, Greg Gagne, well, we'll talk about him maybe. But, uh, you know, you can kind of tell sometimes when he lies because his lips are moving. <laughs> I I don't, I, I, I really don't know. I, I know it would have probably killed Vern in a lot of Vern's way, you know to have Hogan wearing his belt, his title for his territory. I mean, look at it this way. Every, I, I think I've mentioned this on the show. If I have, forgive me. Yeah. I mean, every promoter wants 
a version of himself as the champion. Bill Watts, what did he push? Great big football players. That, well, what yep. was Bill Watts? Vern Gagne wants an amateur wrestler. Well, what was Vern Gagne? Vince McMahon pushed bodybuilders. What's Vince McMahon? But yeah. what, for what Vern, you know, if, if Vern had asked me in 1983 for advice, and he's like, yeah, I really want a guy with with a strong amateur background as champion. Yep. My question to him would have been, Vern, who is this guy? You want? Do you really want to put the title on Brad Rangans? Because I'll tell you right now, you're going out of business. I mean, I can see wanting that, but who is it? I I, I don't see that guy. Yeah, I mean, the big rap on the AWA as as it started to really decline was that Vern was out of touch with the times. Yes. And what Vern would have had to do is feed Hogan challengers, which means he'd have to bring in a heel to cycle through Hogan, just like Vince had to end up doing. You know, he had to find some monsters and guys that looked formative, you know, like, you know, your Bundys or, you know, some of the bigger guys. But, uh, I mean, they did program Hogan into a, into a, um, into a, a pro- they programmed him into a program. Following Super Sunday, you know, when Saito attacked him, and then that, you know, Hogan came back and worked against Schultz and, and Saito. But uh, yeah, as far as Vern, I, I don't, I don't know how the hell he would have booked him because he just didn't have that thought process. Right. I, you know, moving back a little bit, I mean, Vern wanted a babyface champion who had a strong amateur background like Vern Gagne. Well, who could that be? I mean, Iron Sheik, he had a great amateur background. Well, you're, you're, are you going to make him a babyface? Are you going to do that with Mr. Saito? Uh, bad news, Alan Coach. I know, you know, he had a strong background in judo. Are you going to try to make him your babyface champion? I mean, I guess that's my entire point. There were guys who had strong amateur backgrounds. Uh, Billy Robinson, too old. You know, there's just not the guy who's the fit. And when you don't have that, you got to go, okay, well, what's my plan B? And it felt like Vern just never had one. Oh, John, it had to be a terrible dilemma for him. And I'm not trying to make him out to be a sympathetic character. I mean, he's a businessman. Yeah. But but it had to be a dilemma. I mean, uh, what do we do, you know? And if it's not true that Hogan balked on it at the 11th hour, which it very well could be the case that that wasn't true. You know, with the fans that meant that big of a gate and next door, uh, you know, I don't I don't know that everyone would know, know what to do with Hogan with the belt. And Hogan was kind of getting full of himself. He was a star by then. Yes. So, so that was another factor. So, yeah. No, and, and that's the thing. I mean, Hogan, you know, he was just in a movie, and I'm sure he was offered more movie roles. You know, so, I mean, you're right. I mean, Hogan prob- could have been looking past the wrestling business, and Vern could have been crazy about that. Oh, yeah. Well, they clashed over, you know, they clashed over the merch money, and, uh, you know, I think the AWA was probably the first promotion to really push merch. When I look back, they had the all the best in 83 battle royal t-shirt i think it was 83 but anyway they had the t-shirt stuff going and yeah i it had to have been a dilemma no wwf started i mean just selling pictures and at their at their events in like 82 so i mean that boat was definitely moving i'll tell you what greg sirota asked an interesting question and that's something i have a lot to say about what is your assessment of greg Ganya? 
Would he have had a career if not for working for his dad? Brett, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a chance to think about that. I want to talk about this for a minute. Greg Gagne would not have had a career had he not had it not been for his dad. However, that is not me saying that Greg Gagne did not have value because he did. Yep. He was Vern Gagne's son. And in the Midwest, that meant something. Okay. David Sammartino should have been a, a far had a far better right. successful career than he did. People would have come out here, come out to see him here just because he was Bruno's kid, and there was no question he was Bruno's kid. He looked just like him. Well, you know, and I'm not saying make him you know Hulk Hogan superstar Billy Graham, but had he kept his head on straight. He would have always he would have had a job out here for a long time. You know, come see, you know, come to the Totoa Ice Center to see Bruno Sammartino's kid in the middle of the card. He would have had a job forever. Greg Gagne, on the other hand, you know, it's the same thing. And he was a good wrestler. He wasn't big. So that was going to work against him no matter where he worked. But if he was in the Midwest, he was a good enough wrestler. I think the AWA really picked the perfect role for Greg Gagne. He's a tag team specialist. He, he teams with Jim Brunzel. They're usually the tag champions. No, he's usually not at the top of the card. Sometimes he is against Bockwinkle, but that was his role, and I thought they did a really good job maximizing Greg Gagne. And once again, he had value just because he was Vern's son. I, what are your thoughts on this, Brad? Well, Greg Gagne is never in a fair shake. I mean, it's just not going to happen. I heard a, I was listening to a podcast with Dutch Mantel recently, and he actually compared Greg Gagne to to George Goulas. Oh come on! He did. Oh come on! Yeah, he says. Well, other than Greg Gagne, you know, I don't know who else would have. You know, like you were just describing, had a career in this business. But yeah, he did that. And I mean, he's never going to get a fair shake. I'm kind of learning to live with it. Could, would Greg have been working Memphis? Yeah, I don't really see that, you know. Um, they traveled a bit as tag team champions, and Brunzel was better than Greg uh, in the ring. But they were both excellent. And Greg wasn't a bad interview. He's just never going to get a fair shake. And, and like you said, I agree. I don't see him working in another territory. Unless, at some point... Not out of desperation, but just out of creativity, they turned Greg heel. I think that would have been amazing. It could have been, but you know what? It's just something I would have never done. You know, to me, there's just some guys that, you know, you, everyone who's listening to this program knows there. I think there are some guys you just never turn. And, yep. you know, Vern Gagne's kid was one of them. Bruno Sammartino's kid was one of them. You know, once again, I want to join, invite everyone to join the, our Facebook group. Dutch Mantel said something really dumb on Twitter, and he was just wrong. I mean, that's it. He, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Dutch. I like Dutch. I probably like Dutch more than you, person who's listening to this, because I – really enjoyed his stuff in Memphis. I always thought he should have had a role in WCW or the NWA outside of that Kansas Jayhawks thing. You know, he was a really talented guy. I forget what he said, but it was just goofy and wrong. It was funny. People are like, well, I think what Dutch meant, well, say what you mean, man. But yeah, uh, Dutch, Dutch comes out with some winners and that that's a big one right there. Yeah. And I, I like his stuff as well. As well. I, that's another guy I never saw work. But, you know, his podcast stuff that you come across from time to time, 
it's pretty good. But he made that statement, and I was just like, ugh. And that that's just represent. I mean, I don't think that everyone thinks Greg Gagne was George Goulas bad, but I mean, after a while, you stand up for Greg, and I mean, it's kind of like throwing pebbles in the Grand Canyon. No, he he was he didn't have a career outside of outside of his dad's promotion at the end of the day. No, I mean, but and once again, but he is valuable in his dad's promotion. So his value is limited to that, but so what, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Chris Berg, who has been on the show a couple of times, compared yes. Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. He's like, they're our Rock and Roll Express. That's how, that's how good they were. Yeah, they, they were amazing, and they had amazing matches with the Ventura and Adonis. That was their main foil while they were you know, on top of the promotion, but absolutely agreed. Yeah. So what else was going on in the AWA in 1983? What were some of the other feuds that were happening or some of the other programs? The, I know I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to start, keep talking. The AWA was a lot like the WWF in that they kept the number of the angles that they shot, not to a minimum, but like, you know, wasn't, it was a far cry from Memphis. It was all kind of slow moving and, easy to understand it was slow moving it was easy to understand and it was all way too telegraphed like the wwf yeah i mean you could see a turn coming a mile away and i mean they did we almost prided itself greg did they almost prided themselves on the fact that they were run off of two tv angles a year that's all they needed to do and it worked you're right. You, that, I remember all of the WWF angles from 1983 without even thinking about it. I can't tell you what happened the last time I watched Raw because there was so much. Yeah, I've got a whole a whole uh, hash mark thing real quickly on TV angles that they did in 1983. All right. Uh, Wahoo McDaniel got jumped by the Heenan family, bled. Imagine that with Wahoo. Now, who was in the Heenan family at this point besides Bockwinkle? Patera and Duncombe. The Black and Blue Express. Yes, and and Lanza, Lanza, they brought back in, but they changed the script with him. But anyway, Wahoo got juice on TV, getting jumped. But then, and I want to find the tape of this because I haven't seen it since it happened. It was amazing. Maybe you've seen the clip. The clip. Wahoo gets gets a hold of Bobby Heenan on TV and posts him. And Bobby Heenan, you know, you you know the rest. Yes. Uh, and you know, he's, he, they, they got a great shot of them walking him out all concerned as he's bleeding everywhere. Uh, so that, you know, that, that added, interjected some life into the Wahoo, uh, Bachwinkle deal program, uh, Hogan, with Hogan serving as Wahoo second. Ringen's Bachwinkle suplex fast, which was close to the end of the year. That's what I called it. Brad Ringens had a 15-minute match on TV with, with Nick Bockwinkle where he was throwing them all over hell with suplexes and using them. And he got like a two-count when the bell rang, and he was ready to get a three. That's how much Ringens got a push at that time in 83. So the way they led into that quickly is um, when the Wahoo program ended, they had Bockwinkle and Heenan on, and Bockwinkle said, you know, this has been a, a difficult you know, you know how Nick would talk. This is the main gist of it. He'd say, you know, we had this uh, these matches with Wahoo, and I, I just I defeated Wahoo. I pinned him in the middle of the ring, and I'm gloating over this. And, you know, we're going to show a piece of tape right now. So the tape they're going to show is actually from the week before where Ringens almost pins him. So they cut back to Okerlund afterward, and Heenan's going crazy, and Nick is all pissed. 
and and they're like, we go back in the control room during the time, and what's airing on the TV show? It's the match with Brad Riggins. So that's how they worked that in. Okay. Uh, Lanza turned babyface up in Winnipeg where he was booking. That happened, culminating in a bunkhouse match against Bobby Heenan where Heenan had broke his neck in 82 and in Japan. And they had a, the bunkhouse match in St. Paul Civic Center with uh, Blackjack Lanza wearing white against – well, I mean, they were they were dressed in their their uh, cowboy outfits. Yeah, Lanza, I remember seeing pictures of him in, in, the, in, in, you know, in his Blackjack gear, except it was all white. That was so ridiculous. The shoe polish on his head stayed black, <laughs> but in the white. So anyway, uh, getting back to that, I put, he puts Heenan – he does the noose thing, right? Bobby Heenan's working with a broken neck. And he did the thing that they, you know, most people have seen with Ken Patera when Patera came back and he turned babyface. But he puts Lanza puts the, the, the thing around his, his the the rope, the gimmick around Heenan's neck, throws him from corner to corner, and right before Heenan hits the corner, he jerks back and Heenan does the broken neck bump, you know, the uh-huh. flip, doing that bleeding all over, and he's got a broken neck. What a, I mean, what a, what an incredible performer. I mean, that just speaks volumes to. You know, what he was willing to do for the business. And, uh, God, I mean, you know, I, I think he knew that his neck had been broken. I know he didn't get it repaired till he was in WCW and got some insurance. But uh, the, anyway, Lanza turned babyface. Saito attacks Hogan. Uh, Saito was going to give Hogan a uh, ceremonial, uh, not the kimono, <laughs> the, the smoking jacket. Uh, Saito was, was there from the Orient, right? And he's going to present Hulk Hogan with a... With a um, a trophy for something or other. It was, you know, the, every promotion yes. has done it. And then he jump, jumps Hogan and beats him up and he bleeds. I mean, I, I think Ray Charles could have seen, you know, if Mr. Saito's ha- handing Hogan a trophy, you know, Ray Charles could see what's happening next. Was 83 the year where Heenan sold, uh, when Heenan sold Ken Patera to Sheikah Don El Casey? Yes. Okay, so that was a big game. Tell me a little bit about that, how Blackwell and Patera came together. Well, what happened with that is I think Adnan finally blew out his knee. Adnan was getting up there. He turned from a very, like, offensive heel into kind of a coward. And they had to work him out of the mix because, he, you know, his knee was shot. So... He he, $250,000 to Ken Batera, of course. I don't know what that is in today's cash. But they had a suitcase or a briefcase and everything. I mean, they were really, really going for it. $250,000 to Patera, to $250,000 to Heenan. And out comes Patera in the chic outfit. So that was going on with that. But yeah, he did. He did sell them off by the end of the year. Okay, so yeah, I do remember, you know, uh, Sheik Blackwell and Sheik Patera. I mean, it was pretty oh. good stuff. I mean, can, you know, all things considered that these two American guys, Ken Patera, the Olympian, and, and Crusher Blackwell, the good, good old Southern guy, are willing to dress like that uh, in order to, to get money from this guy. Some people got it, though. I remember being at the Civic Center when it was business was really good, and you would see kind of dotted around the arena when the lights were all up. You would see like three or four guys, you know, probably loaded. Of course. And they had on sheet garb. They had on like the, the, the turbans. And, you know, they were trying to make it look like they were, you know, from you know, 
the fans had fun with it. Of course. But yeah, Ken Patera's AW, that's another one that Vern trained and then came back. Uh, Patera didn't work in the AW. It just didn't work. He didn't get over. It was, I remember that was weird because I remember thinking, you know, Ken Patera, he was a huge deal in the WWF. He was the Intercontinental Champion and the Missouri Champion at the same time. Then he went to Georgia and he was, you know, got the big push to the Georgia Heavyweight Champion and he walked out of that promotion for whatever reason without losing the belt. And, but it looked like Patera was on fire. And then he comes back to the AWA and he's he's in a team with, with Bobby Duncombe. And I remember as a fan being like, you know, What's this? This is way too small a role for Ken Patera. Yeah, I don't know if his personal problems had become an issue by that time. I, I, I suspect. But yeah, it was the Black and Blue Express and Bobby Duncan. Well, uh, was Bobby Duncan doing like the uh, the Gary Hart Dusty Rhodes promo thing? He was. He was doing it in the WWF. Yeah, it was. It was really bizarre to have a cowboy talking like that. <laughs> but uh, I, I have a question for you, Mr. John. Okay. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot. All right. Johnny's on the spot. Right, let's see. Let's see how you do. 1983, Nick Bachman was the AWA World's Heavyweight Champion. Who got the most title matches in that calendar year against Bachwinkle? Okay. My first guess, I have two real guesses. Yep. My first guess is Jerry Lawler. Okay. Is that correct? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Seven my s- dates. Seven. That's it? Yeah, it was seven. Uh, uh, in Memphis, Louisville, uh, they went back and forth. But yeah, I got seven matches on my results. All right. Because I know what they went around the horn. I love to use that expression here on Stick to Wrestling in the, the Memphis area. I know they bounced around like Lexington, Louisville, Memphis, of course. Oh, they had some amazing matches. Jerry Lawler's so underrated. And you put him in there with a pro like Bachwinkle. And the angles they were using with Andy Kaufman, they worked into that one. And they had the belt held up in Memphis for another one. And, and they were they were great. But I just I, I was compiling it. I'm like, shit, did Lawler have a lot of time with Bachwinkle? Um so Nick must have been doing okay working in Memphis. Heenan never went down there because they wouldn't pay him. So <laughs> Of course they, they wouldn't. would have Bachwinkle with Jimmy Hart, who is, you know, whatever, however they work that. But yeah, it kind of blew my mind that Jerry Lawler, seven title matches. You know, I, we're, we're almost out of time, and this, this happens every week. The hour goes by really fast. I want to answer, we're, we're talking about Jerry Lawler. Chris Chenault asked, Jerry Lawler was in Chicago in the Twin Cities several times in 1983. Uh, Nick, Nick Bockwinkel was in Memphis shooting with Lawler. Do you think Lawler would have been a draw as AWA champ in 1983? No. Uh, two quick things. Number one, I, I saw a match. I think I have it on video, and I, I saw it in the magazines. In, in Chicago, Jerry Lawler against John Tolos. And it's like, how old? I remember you know, being a kid and being like, John Tolos? I haven't read about him since 1976. You know, he comes back seven years later. Brad, I heard you say no. About no, 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 that's Lawler. correct. No, uh, Lawler and Tolos was on Super Sunday. Oh, okay. And yeah, John Tolos, nobody knew the hell John Tolos was in 1983. You know, and and he 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 certainly didn't look the part. Lawler had a title match with Bachwinkle in Chicago. Okay, just one a one and done in Chicago. But 
Uh, I mean, I got I got a, on my on my notes here. I've got a couple of in and outs. Uh, to Lawler, Lawler worked. They, Lawler did like some heel promos, but by the time Super Sunday rolled around, they had they had moved him over without much fanfare. Okay, and he worked with John Tolles. I got Superstar Billy Graham was in and out. Oh, that's right. Uh, and, yeah, and just not the ghost of Superstar Billy Graham. Oh, you know, and I was excited. I mean, I I'd seen his stuff with Backlund from '82 on the USA Network, but I was I'm I was still a Superstar Billy Graham fan. Looking backwards on what on you know his his previous run there and whatnot, um, I'm really a big fan of his. But he was just beyond shot. Yeah, it's sad to say, but he was. Yeah, and it, and it got it got worse for him actually after eighty two. But he was in and out, did make a dent. Nobody batted an eyelash, and it was just it was kind of sad in that sense. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I, I do know what you're saying. I mean, you know, I grew up a big superstar Billy Graham fan, and you know, I seeing him when he was shot on WTBS in nineteen eighty five was was never fun. But to answer Chris's. Uh, question i i think you and i are going to disagree on this i think lawler would have gotten over as champion anywhere and when i say that i think they could have brought him in in backland's place in 1976 and he would have gotten over in the wwf and i've had people you know tell me i'm crazy for saying that look lawler i think could talk you into the building no matter what uh and the same i think he would have been a good nwa champion a little small but i i he still was a great worker and yeah i think if if the awa had turned him loose in 1983 and made him the guy which he didn't want to be he was making plenty of money in memphis and then just staying home but let's say that wasn't an option i think he would have done great as awa champion what do you think brad I, I i agree with you i don't have any problem with that i jerry lawler was a master craftsman be it on the microphone i mean and he had the benefit of the the great booking and a lot of fun they had in memphis and they could take the most ridiculous shit and lance russell could make you know make it seem yeah uh Law- no lawler was, was was i mean i hope we don't lose the king anytime soon but I think the appreciation for him is going to skyrocket because I, he was just so entertaining. And a guy that never worked out, he just went no. and he talked. Like you said, he talked to people into the building. But his, I've never seen a bad Jerry Lawler match. Well, I'm sure. I mean, you know, 15 years ago, he was still working every now and right. then. And I've avoided those matches. I, I went to the Mid-South Coliseum. In 95, it was Jerry Lawler against Buddy Landell, and it, it could have been more obvious that Jerry just wanted to, you know, mail it in and get the hell out of there. But that, you know, he had been working the building for 20 years. It was just another Monday night for him. Brad, well, before you go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Speaking of getting the hell out of there with the Mid-South Coliseum, I was in Memphis, I think, 25 years ago. I did the Graceland thing. I'm a huge Elvis fan. Okay. At the Sun Studios, and then I wanted to go see the Mid-South Coliseum. And uh, we turned around and left. It, it the the neighborhoods were getting pretty rough over there. Nah, the ra- neighborhoods get, could get rough in Memphis to say yeah, the least. Yeah, but it was you know it was people were very nice, but we were just lost and there was no GPS at that time. Yes, but I just got a Memphis Mid South Coliseum T shirt. As a matter of fact, nice. Now I am with the buildings. So, all right. I, what, what was your real quick? What was your kind of takeaway from being at the Mid South Coliseum? A lot of tradition in that place. 
I mean, I'm glad I got to go see wrestling there twice. I went in 88 and again in 95, and I can say I was there. And, you know, I mean, the 88 show wasn't very good. The 95 show wasn't good at all. The the 95 show was okay because they were doing the the Smoky Mountain invasion thing. So that wasn't bad. But, I I mean, like I said, I, I wish I had gone, had been able to go in like 78 or 82 when things yeah. were really rocking. Here's what I wanted to ask you before we we end this episode. How did you find out that Hulk Hogan and Gene Okerlund had both left the AWA? And what was not just your reaction to it, but the general reaction to it? Uh, what happened was Hogan was the first, I want to say. Sounds right. And I think, oh, well, it might have been the exact same time. What happened was, I was in high school, I remember this, and, and, and what happened is Hogan called into the local Hits FM radio station, the hottest one in town. He called in and talked, you know, was being interviewed, quote unquote, about how he went to New York and won the, won the real world's title. Oh. Yeah, I remember having a couple of friends tell me about that, and then I got a chance to hear it later. But um, that's what he did, and then Okerlund just showed up on uh, on WWF TV, and what a massive, massive loss Gene Okerlund was. I think you posed the question at one point on, on the on Facebook about you know who was a bigger loss, Hogan or Okerlund, and I said that's a really hard question to answer. Okerlund so great at what he did he was amazing even when he went to the you know, went to new york he was just amazing such such a talent well he, he was definitely different than anything we'd ever seen i i confess it took me a while to get used to gene okerland and you know his carnival barker type thing so camp yeah but i i wasn't used to it i was i was used to vince McMahon and returning to madison square garden you know that, that, it's like i said it's, it's all what you grow up on brad thank you for taking the time to join us once again on stick to wrestling i've been looking forward to talking 1983 awa with you absolutely thank you for having me on the show again i really appreciate it and you know i get some good some kind comments afterward and i really appreciate that too that's very very kind Well, keep the comments coming, people. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Next week, unless something crazy happens, don't rule it out, we will finally get to WWF Summer, a spring of 1983. The It's it's probably going to be a two-part episode. Actually, it's definitely going to be a two-part episode. And, yeah, we'll be talking about uh, spring 83, uh, the second part will come out when summer has already begun, you know, but we'll finally get this out. We'll get to summer 1983 as well. So thank you everyone for listening. I want to thank Brian last for giving us this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does, especially on this show. He's got a really quick turnaround time. So Lou, thank you for, for doing what you do. And I, this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. This concludes our podcast day. 